Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you're welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast where we explore some of the stories that we've featured in the Irish Examiner and others which we think may be of interest to you anyway. Today I'm speaking to somebody who in some respects many of you might know, but the depth of her wisdom and experience is something I believe requires the extended interview format that we have on the podcast. Alice Leahy is the director of the Alice Leahy Trust, which provides services for homeless people in Dublin. The service is unique in that it includes a drop-in centre for those who have nowhere to go after a night either sleeping on the streets or in a hostel. The big thing that people get in the Alice Leahy Trust really is human warmth. But they also get assistance for medical needs and the basic kind of needs that most of us can meet ourselves on a routine basis. Alice has been operating the service since 1975 and she chronicled much of her fascinating and full life in a memoir published last year, The Stars Are Our Only Warmth, which she co-wrote with journalist Catherine Cleary. Now, I know Alice a long time, and quite frankly, I could listen to her all day simply for her wisdom, the breadth of her experience in dealing with both the organs of state and the kind of people whom she has met through her work, many of whom she describes as outsiders, which I think is a very apt description. And she's worth listening to for her philosophy, which is grounded in basic human empathy, yet is in no way woolly or removed from the realities of everyday life. The other morning, I dropped into the trust rooms and I dragged Alice away from her work. As you can imagine, things are hectic for a service like theirs at this time of year. Alice, you're very busy here this morning in the run-up to Christmas. We are, Mick. It's a very, very busy time. And I suppose at Christmas time, we... I think if you believe in Christmas, it's all the year round. And in our centre here, which is in the basement of the Ivy Hostel, a building of over 100 years old in the heart of the Liberties. Now, we always have a Christmas candle lighting and the fire is a sign of hope. We're non-denominational and we're not aligned to any political party. And we put up a tiny crib. Now, the figures often disappear, but then they're put back. And then we put up, um, we have a lovely candle that we get from a local shop here. They give it to us at Christmas. And, of course, we have a lyric and we get the uh, the lovely... In fact, even this morning, we, Shane McGowan was on up there and uh, you have the Christmas carols. Now, this morning, it, it was like so many mornings over Christmas when we opened and now we were absolutely full. We were could I, could I just, just it for listeners, Alice... People will know that you, you, you provide service yeah. for the homeless, but just the specifics of the Alice Leahy Trust, it's effectively a drop-in centre, but one in which you provide a lot of the ancillary services for people. Now, for, could we, you just tell us yeah, a small bit about that, just yeah. put it in context? Well, when, when we were set up, Mick, in 1975, we were around a long time, it was the first doctor and a nurse service going around visiting people sleeping rough and seeing to their needs. Now, things in in the meantime, a lot of money came on stream, a lot of people designed other uh, services. And it's great now because there is a GP who is paid to do it and public health nurses and all that who, who are out there. But this freed us up to work with the people we work with who really are outsiders, total outsiders. Now, when we talk, what we do here in the morning, when we talk, we look at the whole person 
First of all, it's about welcoming people, about accepting people. We, it's about hospitality, first and foremost, when people come in the door, they get a cup of tea, a cup of coffee. Michael McCambridge gives us lovely fresh brown bread every morning. And, and we, as I said, there's music there. So the needs of people, the most important thing in our work, and it should be in any kind of work with people, is to welcome the person and deal with them as they present and people present with a whole range of problems and people are sleep- uh, the people are sleeping out. So if you just imagine what it's like to be sleeping out in this weather, people are cold, uh, people are need a shower, they need their skin treated, they need fresh clothes, they need their feet that are often in an appalling state. Sometimes people need forms filled in, sometimes somebody wants a phone call made, they may be going to court and need an outfit of clothes. I suppose it becomes harder and harder to actually describe the importance of the basic things we do. Yeah, and just like putting it in a small bit of context, Alice, there's a lot of organisations who do fantastic work in attempting to mm. house people yeah. who have no homes, yeah. homeless. And, and the, the cohort of homeless that has really risen yeah. in recent years is those who are literally just without a home. Yeah. But an awful lot of the people who come here to the Alice Leahy Trust, as you described them, mm. outsiders, they're people who have the type of conditions that led to homelessness rather than merely not having the, the wherewithal to, to, to have a place to live. And, and that that is a very important issue. And this is something I would urge listeners to kind of grapple with and try to understand we all know, and it is shocking, that there is a huge housing problem. And there are agencies doing amazing work, really doing the work the state should be doing in many instances, because many of them have taken over providing the housing. And meanwhile, the local authorities aren't providing the housing. And that's where we are now from that point of view. I mean, you have families out there, and it is truly shocking. But we are inclined to forget about the people who kind of traditionally became homeless because people become homeless for all kinds of reasons. Now, every per- there is childhood trauma, relationship breakdown, addiction. And we often, when we talk about addiction, we often kind of concentrate on the cocaine and the heroin, but the addiction to alcohol. Now, when we hear the stories of people, incidentally, we don't pry into the lives of people because every life is personal. And if those of us who are working with people, uh, everyone ha- has a skeleton in the closet. Somebody said to me once that the the story of people's lives, it's their only possession for some of the people we come in with. And why should they have to expose themselves Uh, to get a service and we also put nothing up on the computer but we do ask people when they come in what country they've come from for instance in the early days of our work in 1975 most of the people who used our service came from the institutions they were sad broken people we never saw them laugh we rarely saw them Uh, they would cry maybe quietly but now, so when on. you say the institutions, sorry, Alice, do, do, do you mean the psychiatric institutions or institutions like mother and baby homes? And uh, both, right? Uh, we had the psychiatric institutions. You had the mother and baby homes. Now, in some way, we all know awful things happened in those places. But strangely enough, I had a woman in with me the other day, and she's not homeless. Uh, she came in to give us a donation, and she grew up in one of the homes down in Cork. And she said she can still remember leaving that place so sad because she said 
it, she felt they were happy days. Now, we don't often hear that side of things. So everybody has their own story, and I know horrific things happened. We also had people locked away in the psychiatric hospitals, and they were often locked away because they were outsiders. They didn't fit in. They were challenged. Very often they were very challenging. And, of course, we got to the stage then that we we now medicalise uh, the, the social issues and, and the poverty. But in those days, people were locked away in the institutions and uh, became so institutionalised that they couldn't cope outside. But then, you see, the idea was that we would have enough services in the community and we'd have a loving, caring community. Well, of course, that's not what life is about. So the services were never put in place. And I do feel... I feel that the people who are attempting to meet the needs of people with serious mental health issues have enormous problems. Very often for the the doctors who are trying to get help for people who have serious psychiatric problems, they can't get a bed for them. And then these people invariably end up in prison. And prison is no place for somebody with serious mental health problems. So in some ways, we got rid of the institutions we now are creating newer institutions. And I don't know, is it peculiarly Irish, but why isn't it we haven't discussed these issues? And why? And I think this is where people in the media have a hugely important role to play, particularly, I think, in the current climate, where you have children now becoming homeless. You have couples going to sleep in a tent. I mean, is there anything more heartbreaking than see a young couple walking the streets, going off then with their bag and going into a tent for the night. That's all right when we were all young and, and, and camping around Europe. But this has now become almost the norm. So then what we meet here then on a morning, for instance, this morning when we opened up, we were full up. There were an awful lot of people there. Uh, I suppose what strikes me this time of the year, you can see the sadness in people's eyes. You can see... There is nothing, I think, as challenging as to see men in particular. These might be the men who in the past might go and sit in the pub and have a pint and hope somebody will come and talk to them. Or they might go into a church and sit there and be lost in the church. We would encourage people to come and sit for a while, but it can be difficult because we have to make sure there's no racism We now meet huge numbers of people who come from abroad. Now, that number seems to be declining here a bit. We had up to 26 different countries coming here about six months ago, and now it's gone down to about 17. And what do you put that down to, Alice? I don't know. Is it that some, some people would have got accommodation? I think some people would have got work. And you see, some of the people who come here have had jobs, and then the jobs go, they lose their jobs, they can't pay their rent, and then they become homeless. And that would be true of some of the people coming from abroad and some of the people we meet here who are our own Irish people. And we would notice, too, more younger Irish men in particular who come in here. And we're talking now about people who are effectively either living on the streets, literally, yeah. or perhaps in hostels. They, they can spend a night in the hostel. And then once, they're out. And then they're out yeah. and they would come here to spend yes. some of the morning at some least Some of here. the morning. And then they will have a cup of tea, they will uh, they will get nursing attention, uh, someone would need phone calls made, someone would be trying to maybe get back home. It's really as long as a piece of string. And really what it is about Mick, I think it's trying to capture the complexities of the human condition. 
And we also see people who come into us who get visibly upset when they're leaving. Because first of all, when you look around the room up there and you see people, and yet you see some of them who are so happy. I mean, there's one man who comes into us every day. He's Irish. He comes into us. He was very malnourished when he started coming here. We give him food supplements. Uh, he comes in. He takes out the basin with lovely it, we got protectors, food protectors from a company down in Waterford it, that uh, they you put them into the basin and it makes sure there's no infection and he comes in and he gets one and he puts it into the basin he soaks his feet, he gets a new pair of socks he got a new pair of shoes there recently, they were expensive shoes but they fell apart and uh, then he goes off and the only thing he looks for when he's going well I see you tomorrow, Alice have you a bar of chocolate and he likes now, that's very simple, but I think he's a modern-day prophet because today I said to him, it's an awful wet day out there. Uh, and what do you mean? Ah, sure, aren't we used to the rain here in Ireland? We could be out in Africa where they're waiting for the rain. So it would be easy to dismiss him as just a very simple man, but isn't it the simple people who challenge us? Completely, and it, it, it's also the, the, the complexities, and particularly the complexities of the mind, can lead to people not being able to fit into the, the, the strictures that we have in society, and therefore they end up perhaps on the street. Yeah. And the other thing, and I think this is a huge thing that the Alice Lee Trust is involved in, to most of us, mm. the individuals we meet who are on the street... Mm. They're effectively invisible. They're, they're, yeah. on, on some level, we can't relate to them. Some no. of us, unfortunately. And yet, this is a place, in, in some ways, it's a haven or a sanctuary mm. for people in yeah. that regard. Now, people are... I have great colleagues here now, and this is a very difficult time here for all of us. It's, it, it's hard work. Uh, it's never easy. And it's not something you just do for Christmas. Uh, why is it harder at Christmas? Could you explain that, Alice? I think it's harder at Christmas uh, for because you see the goodness of people. You read the papers all the time, a great even the pa- and you hear so many awful stories. And I think people can become overwhelmed by that, you know. And they say, "Oh, look at you, that's their own fault. There's nothing we can do. We can give to an agency, and that's great because people do." But I think I would like to see, in some ways, podcasts like this to maybe get some kind of a discussion going about why have we so many outsiders? Why are there so many, young men in particular, who feel they must take their own lives because there's no hope out there? And are we doing enough to concentrate on maybe what the little people are saying? When you say the little people. I suppose I was thinking, I was, the other, last Sunday I was over in the Ontarian Church and one of the readings there was from a John B. Cain uh, play, or story. And it was very interesting because it captured it. He spoke about this woman living in the village, Listol, I suppose. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, I, I'm a great believer he always said it as it was. But there was this woman who had a son who went abroad, and he never wrote a letter. She never heard from him. But the postman, like the postman, they always knew more about, as he said, they knew more about the people getting the letter than the people themselves knew. So he decided this Christmas he would write a letter and he gave it to her. And he said she used to be looking out the window looking for a letter. 
And he gave it, gave, she gave the letter and the joy in the woman's face. And she said, I always knew he could write and I always knew he could send me a letter. And in some ways, I think people like him, and I'm not just saying this to you, Mick, because of your Kerry roots. <laughs> That's North Kerry. Uh, the North Kerry. But it, it's those kind of what appear as simple messages, like you have people up there who won't get a card or won't get a letter. And um, many of them don't want to get a card or a letter. And um, we are really forgetting about these things. And when we talk about the outsider, we did two education projects, national education projects for a transition year. And we're thinking of actually doing it again on the theme of the outsider. Because the outsider could be somebody who could be seen to have mental health problems, could be somebody who's a millionaire up in the hills but won't buy a kettle or buy an egg. Uh, it could be somebody with dreadlocks. It could be someone who's very talented. It could be somebody who has a disability. And I think we're in great danger of making creating more and more outsiders in the world we live in. Yeah, so, I mean, on, on a similar level, that idea of what is regarded as being acceptable in society, what is regarded as being the norm in society, arguably, and, yeah. and particularly with younger mm. people with social media, yeah. that has even narrowed. So therefore, if you're anyway different, are you an outsider and is That's there a right. place for you? And if there is no place for <clears> you... Uh, then you could become homeless and then you automatically get sucked into having maybe a psychiatric label and having to be medicated, going to prison where you have another label attached and then you're using the homeless services and you're homeless. You're no longer a person. I mean, people in the homeless service quickly become clients or customers. We have to focus on the person. And, and I think by looking at our own needs and what we value uh, and then try and see what it must be like for somebody out there. I mean, it must be horrendous to see everywhere you go. For, for instance, at Christmas, you, you, there'd be food centres, there'd be dinners. But wouldn't it be lovely to be able to go into one, into a nice pub, into a nice restaurant and just sit there like the rest of the crowd? But very often you're identified by your clothes, uh, by... And, and if you're out there, I mean, you will smell if you have no place to have a wash. I mean, we made a submission for public showers. Now, we're wasting our time. We made it the local government elections before last, 11, many years ago. And then we made it, but the last one, we didn't bother even sending it because people can't make the connection. And unless, and, and I think... In, people like nurses and doctors and social workers and, and solicitors all and guards, all of us who have contact with people. We wouldn't be in our jobs if there weren't those people out there. So we need to be asking questions. Why are those people, why do they feel so outside of things? And then you will have people who are very happy in their outside. The man I mentioned earlier, uh, I said, will you go back to family for Christmas? He said, no. I said, will you have any friends? No. He said, I'll just do my own thing. I can prove to people I can exist. And he's really quite happy. And in your experience at this time of year, does it heighten alienation? Or are some people, do, do they manage on their own level to get in this sort of warm, fuzzy spirit, you might say, in some places in, in, in that regard? Some people don't want to know it's Christmas at all. 
uh, we 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 don't open at weekends, and we 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 are open specific times during the day because we don't want to create dependency. Now we shouldn't be here. Our service should not be here. And I think we constantly say, and our directors say, do they, are we still needed? Should we? And we know we're needed because we see the numbers of people who come here. But they come here because it's a very personal service, and that involves saying to people, look at that behaviour now isn't acceptable. If you behave like that when you go to get a service, how do you think people react to you like that? And it's not about treating children. It's about treating people as equals. And treating people as equals can say, look, would you just put the towel in the bin? Or saying, no, this isn't right, this behaviour. And what can we do to help you? There's nothing high-powered about it. There's nothing academic about it. It's just common sense. You started 40 years ago. Uh, and, and there was a real requirement for service there. We lived in a different Ireland then. The country mm. has gone from being a developing country yeah. to being a wealthy country. Yeah. And I know this is difficult, but just to try and separate the housing problem from the, yeah. the type of people that will come in here, yeah. the outsiders, yeah. as, as you put it. Have things got better in terms of people who find themselves in that situation? Or are they more alienated today? I think they're more alienated. And I think... The powers that be to have, they they need to challenge this because I think they are all dealing with the housing problem. And it is scandalous that there is such a lack of housing. Scandalous. It's scandalous that there is no local authority housing being built. So in our early days of working in the field, uh, you had lots of local authority housing. You had places where you could send people. You had hostels where you could send people and they could get accommodation for a given number of time. Now in the meantime we have progressed with the small p because coming along with all the money there is all the bureaucracy, there's all the red tape, there's all the experts. I got into trouble recently for talking about experts. So you could have somebody presented with a care plan and the plan is that you work to this plan and then you move on and that will solve your homelessness. But what very often happens is, and I should read a poem for you that I have up there that was written by a homeless w- woman for one of our staff who is gravely ill at the moment. Now, she came in to us, she got a lovely flat, she got everything in the flat. She didn't last a wet week because she couldn't cope. And she said, what's wrong is she said, I have an addiction. And she said, that's not being dealt with. I should deal with it, but it's not being dealt with. So then people are seen as bigger failures if they don't use the accommodation. The loneliness in accommodation, I think this is why we're seeing so many people uh, going to these um, the soup runs that are springing up all over the place. I think a lot of the people going to those are people who are living in accommodation, but they're cut off and they're lonely. Now, recently I asked for a meeting with the Garda Commissioner. I met the Garda Commissioner at something and I said, I would like to meet you because we use meet guards on social placement. The guard, and I said it was one of the better things we did because they would come to us for a very structured two weeks. They wouldn't be just licking stamps to put in envelopes. They wouldn't be, they would have to see people. They are going to be called to move on. And they are left with the dilemma, where do you move people on to? Uh, there's antisocial behaviour. You have to arrest them. They go to the courts. 
all the money that's involved, they go to prison. But anyway, this all stopped when there was a recruitment in Barbara. But we met the commissioner, and I had a letter uh, yesterday from Temple Moor. So we said, we want to go and meet the young recruits. We want to talk to them about what it's like. But meanwhile, I gave a talk about two years ago to a group of nurses. And I went to a lot of trouble to prepare a paper. And I described what their role as nurses surely should be. You see... Um, Just to let listen, you're a nurse yourself. You worked in yes, nursing before. I, I did. Now, there are two tiers of nursing, and I'd be criticised for this, but it doesn't matter. Nurses now uh, have, do academic training, and I think that's wonderful. But I think the whole emphasis then changes, because if you have somebody in hospital and you say to the nurse, would you mind doing this, or you have some patient who really wants, just imagine somebody, an elderly or not too elderly person going into hospital and they're frightened and they're meeting doctors and nurses and social workers and carers and all of that. What they might want is just somebody to hold their hand and say, look, you will be all right. We've lost that sense. So anyway, I went to an awful lot of trouble. I presented a paper and I tried to make the connection that it's both of you working together to try and see what you can do. Um, there was no response. I, I, You would pull your hair out. But unless we get back to focusing on the hu- complexities of the human condition, looking at the human needs, it's all right to say you can't solve a problem, but at least you can make the person feel human. Yeah, I mean, you seem to, and I know, because I know from my own experience, I know you a long time, Alice, you seem to be touching on two things there, to my mind, in terms of the way things have developed as the country's got wealthy. One is the professionalisation of services, Mm. which is very positive in one way. And important. And important. And the second one is this thing, everybody, the casual person, the person who would have natural empathy, everybody seems to have less time today for that interaction that came very naturally to a previous generation. And that's true. Uh, and I feel sorry for people who are in jobs. I and mean, we would have met people who say, oh, we, we can only spend 10 minutes doing this. Now, I wrote a book. I think, Mick, were you in it? Uh, Wasting Time with People. You were. And that came about because uh, James McCormick, who's a wonderful man, he, he was uh, head of the Department of Community Health in Trinity, the first head of it, and he was chair of the Eastern Health Board at one stage. So he came in with a piece of paper one day and it was written by a consultant in the NHS who went out to Africa, of course, to solve the problems. And when he went out, the Anglican bishop sat him down and said, why don't you people in the West waste time with people instead of talking about budgets and projects? So I used that as the title of the book and got a number of people to write on the theme. And... Really, I can see how people are under terrible pressure to get money to, to provide projects. Also, you have staff who are fearful they lose their jobs if they speak out. You know, you know that yourself. That is a huge problem. So very often, very dedicated people in there who've got a job, they are afraid to speak out. And isn't there something wrong in our society when people have to go to people like you uh, who are whistleblowers to to get across the needs of the people we're talking about. Because when I'm talking about the needs of the people we're talking about, I'm talking about all our needs, because I think staff who are attempting to raise the concerns I have, 
they become burned out, they become disillusioned. And what are we doing to them? And I think this is where our independence is crucial. I wanted to ask you about that. As you said, you're not government funded. First of all, did you ever consider looking for government funds, state funds? In the early days, we did get money from the Eastern Health Board and we had to get money from the Eastern Health Board. We even borrowed from the Vincent de Paul one time because we used to pay a doctor here at one stage. And then we decided to discontinue that. And actually, when the doctor, when we dis- discontinued that, we employed a man who had been in prison for years. And that man was probably one of the most amazing people I ever worked with. I met him, uh, I heard of him, when I was on Council of Europe Hol- uh, Fellowship in uh, um, Holland. And I was in The Hague. And the man in charge of the prison service there said to me, did I know this particular man, Paddy? And I said, no, never heard of him. And then when I came back, I mentioned it to a few people I knew. And then one day he came in to us. And uh, he was very annoyed. He'd come out of prison. His relationship was fragile when he came out. And he was working as a nighttime porter. So the nighttime involved part of the night and part of the morning. So when he went to get labour for the days he wasn't working, he said the way he was treated by the the woman who said, uh, well, you're not entitled to this, you're not entitled to that because there were so many hours nighttime, so many hours overtime. So he he was looking for a flat. And this is where things have changed. So I said, look, there are loads of council flats going up the road, up in Ellingham Street, these places are gone. I said, just go up there, get your feet in there and then look for a transfer. So we went up there. Willie Birmingham gave us a mattress. Somebody else gave us a clock. He got everything sorted out. And then he came back. And then eventually he got a better flat. You couldn't do that now. And in a way, looking at the things that... But maybe to mention him first, he came back to see how he could help us. He was amazing. And then our trustees at the time decided we would employ him. Now, I think he was one of the most amazing people I've ever worked with. If he had been given the chances, he could be a high court judge now or he could be a Taoiseach now. And yet, I know he got so angry one day, he answered the phone. And the way somebody spoke to him on the phone, because he had a Dublin accent and they wanted to speak to me. And it was about something simple. And I said, don't let that bother you. That's their problem not yours. We haven't progressed in any way around that. Yeah, and what's interesting, there much you say, Alice, is obviously, as you set out that man, Paddy, his background, mm. he ultimately was a success. He was a success was. in terms of where he came from. He we measure success yes. in a very narrow way we in do. society. And, I, and we still feel... I mean, people look at me and they and I look at myself sometimes and I say, God, I'm too long around. But I, thank God I, I have the energy. And I think... I have the energy because I challenge things and it's in my genes. But I think how we measure success. I mean, one of the things that really annoys me over Christmas, you have these glitzy programmes and you have poor women who are pencil slim and are seen as... they, have, they It's very hard on them because of the pressure on them. But we define success because, for instance... If you go for local election, just to use... I don't know who any of our local councillors are here. I know Manix Flynn, who is great with homeless people. And yesterday, uh, um, Anne Feeney, who's a Fine Gael councillor, not in this area, actually dropped in, and she's dropped into us before, and she said, Alice, what, can, what should I, as a council member... You know, and that's good. 
But we don't even know who the councillors are here in this area now. So you have councillors who get on the first rung of the ladder and it's about the next election. Uh, you have, you can see it. You can see it with the Lord Mayors. They get elected. Every function is people from their own area. There's a very narrow focus on our community. And so at any level, I wish I could come up with some idea. You know, we are hoping to organise some kind of conference in the new year with the difference to get people asking the questions. Why are we, cre- why have we so many sad people around? Why have we so many extremely generous people around? And what is it that we are only dwelling on this at Christmas? I mean, when I saw a young mother, uh, go, I know Brother Kevin very well, I know him for years, even though I come from Tipperary and he's from Cork, we have our passionate <laughs> debates. But I think he's a dub fan there, like myself. But anyway, I saw a young woman one day and she said, well, I'm going down now to Brother Kevin's for a food parcel. I'm going down to get nappies for the children. And I, my ma used to take me there when I was young. Now, what have we done in the intervening years to help people like that, that they can uh, feel they are equal to everyone else, that they don't have to go to those places? I don't see any... Pol- I've met politicians in all the parties. If you said to me, is there anyone out there now, Mick, who, who can grasp the nettle? It's about the next election. And the people we work with, they don't vote. They don't fit into any given area. But what they are, they're a snapshot of the people our society is creating. Alice, finally could I ask you, what does Christmas mean to you now? Do you know, I was looking at the people up there this morning, and you have no idea, I don't know what people had for their breakfast this morning, wherever they went, but everyone was... They were kind of, someone came up and gave me a hug. And somebody, what it, Christmas means, what we're doing here now. I think Christmas is a, a nice for people. It's a very sad time. I'm going to get a nice novel where everyone lived happily ever after and have a nice chicken and Charlie, my husband, will cook the dinner. And um, but for everyone, but I think when we look, we always look back at we, before Christmas. I say to people here, we're in a very privileged position. We're able to help people who come in here because other people help us, and the people who help us couldn't do what we're doing. And all of us together, but we sit down after Christmas, all of us, and say, "What was Christmas about?" Now I have a few letters that I'm, I'll always read out some of the special letters we get. And one of them is from a man by the name of John. He wrote in one of my books years ago, he said he wasn't homeless, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke. And I think it was a young guard in O'Connell Street told to come over here. And he sat up there and Jerry said to him, how are your feet? And he couldn't believe it because nobody ever said to him, how are your feet? Nobody would say to any of us. And even though I had to get in or a chiropodist to have a look at a foot for me this morning. But anyway... um. He wrote me then afterwards and he said, which I, I couldn't put a face on him, and he sent me a small sum of money, but for him it was a huge sum. And every Christmas he writes to us. And then he said, he went back to college. He was in touch with his family, and I just want to say thanks. And I had a card from him the other day, and he's in, in poor health, and I had hoped to meet him last year for, for lunch somewhere that would suit him, because he's now in a wheelchair. And... I wouldn't know him if he came in there. And then another lovely letter from Jonathan Corrie's mother, 
we knew Jonathan. Jonathan, and just to remind yeah. you, Jonathan was the man who unfortunately he was, yeah. he was found dead and, outside and, and, at the gates yeah. of the doll and there was something of a, a, a major political storm. There was. And, and actually, I hate mentioning it, but I did. There was a huge political storm. They mentioned the name of the doll. They were marching down there. They were, But that man had a family and he had people who cared for them and we knew him near. near. So I had a lovely letter from Jonathan's mum to say she wasn't able to get up to us this year. And they're all, there was another letter after I was on some programme. It was a young vet down the country. And she said, had we people with dogs or anything? So we wrote to her and we said, well, we even had some of the rabbit one time. We had some of the cat. We had people with dogs. But we do encourage them to go down to the Blue Cross clinic. And we had a man coming in at the minute who was a big dog. And we know it's well covered. A lovely letter from her this morning. Thanking us for the lovely letter we wrote to her. And... Uh, so wonderful things happen. And I think the sadness of it is, I say to everyone, you could see all the cards up there, that we say, make sure we don't get rid of any cards until we read them all over again. Because we get lovely letters from people all over the country, people we don't even know. So there is that lovely, I feel selfish, well, I'm not selfish, selfish now, because we do, we experience great generosity. And, great, and from young people, you know, young people we might have met uh, and they would think of us at Christmas. So really good things happen. And I suppose, Mick, I don't want to be all doom and doom, and I'm not all doom and gloom, but if we could capture that energy and maybe maybe kind of separate it a little bit and get some kind of a discussion going, because there are great people working in all the services, statutory and voluntary. I do need our politicians need to shake up, but... If we could use it to kind of maybe question what's happening, why is it happening, what can we do? And I think also to challenge the powers that be, that it's not all about these high-powered, glitzy stuff that goes on, that they shouldn't forget either that they were ordinary people living in a community until they became politicians, and that we kind of get some discussion going about why is it we are creating so many outsiders? Alice Lee, thank you very much. Yes, plenty of food for thought there, I think. And you'd have to hope that those who make decisions that affect all of us sometimes pause and take on board the wisdom and experience of people like Alice. OK, that's it for today, folks. I'd like to thank JJ Vernon, our sound engineer. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. And please get in contact with me with any opinions or ideas on the podcast at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter at at mickcliff. Happy Christmas to all our listeners and we'll be back with you bright and early in the new year. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. 
feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.